the sermon, work, or work heartily as for the Lord. Work, work heartily as for the Lord. Paul has been addressing the roles and the distinctions within the Christian home. As Christians, God's new humanity, as those who've been crucified with Christ, have been buried with Christ, and have been raised with Christ, we partake of God's new creation, that is, the kingdom of God. We are God's new race of humanity, created anew in the last Adam, the one who is, according to 1 Corinthians 15, the life-giving spirit, old Adam, into the new Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, if there's any truth that I would want you to grasp today as far as your doctrine of sanctification, it would be the great truth that you are no longer in the first Adam. Your GPS, your standing, your location is now in the last Adam. You are in union with Jesus Christ. All that is His is now yours by faith. The Father can no more reject His Son than He can reject you because you are in the Son. He cannot reject you. He loves you. He sees you clothed in the righteousness of His beloved Son. And the one in whom He said at the transfiguration, this is my Son. This is my Son. Israel failed. Adam failed. But this last Adam, Jesus Christ, He has not failed. And in Him, I'm well pleased. I'm well pleased. Listen to him. So, church, he loves you. He's for you. He's called you out of darkness to walk in his marvelous light, in his son, to be who he's called you to be as faithful wives and husbands, as obedient children and loving and nurturing fathers. And today we're going to look at the the subject of our vocation as workers, right? We're going to look under under this section of laying out responsibilities to slaves and masters and how it relates in our modern parlance, our modern contemporary world, in our understanding of vocation and work. You see, the Holy Spirit desires that we understand that our saving union in Jesus Christ, it shapes every square inch of our life. There's no quarter, there's no nook or cranny where Jesus does not step into each one of our lives individually and corporately and say, it is mine. I've purchased it, not with silver, not with gold, but I've purchased it with my own blood. Go and live for me. Live out of my joy. Rest in me, even as you pursue holiness. For without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. And those who've been truly regenerate, are those whom he's worked in to persevere to that very end, to be holy, even as their Father is holy. So listen now to God's holy word. I'm going to pick up reading in chapter 3, verse 17, because, it, again, it sets some context. And I want you to listen, particularly as we get to verses 22 to chapter 4, verse 1. I want you to just take note of the reference to the Lord, the Lord Jesus, five times. He's going to give these exhortations out of the great reality that we are in Jesus Christ. So listen now to God's word as I read it, and then I will pray for us. Christian, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. 
Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting or suitable or becoming in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh or embittered or resentful with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke or exasperate your children, lest they become discouraged. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, that is, those according to the flesh. Not by way of eye service or eye servitude, as people pleasers, really, seeking to merely curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart, singleness of purpose, fearing the Lord, that is, the Lord Jesus. Whatever you do, work heartily or or from the soul with your guts. As for the Lord and, and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants or slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. The grass withers, the flowers fade, right? We know this. We're called cut flowers. There's beauty in cut flowers, but for a moment, but for a season. And that beauty is to be enjoyed, but it is always to remind us that we too, like cut flowers, will fade. But this same word that was read there in Philemon's house 2,000 years ago, delivered by Epaphras and Onesimus, the slave, to that home, to that church, is the same word today. You see, God's Word is the eternal flower, if you will. It's the living water. It's truth. It's all we have. It's all we have. And life keeps beating us down, and God's providence to remind us Jesus is all we have. And you know what's so great about that? Jesus is all we need. He's all we need. He's all we need. We have Him. We have everything. Oh, let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that we have Jesus, but more importantly, Jesus has us. That we are your people who have been called out of darkness and clothed in the garments of another, even our elder brother, the faithful Adam, the one in whom you're well pleased. So we come to you well pleased in him because you spared him not, that you so loved us, you gave your son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. Bless the words of my mouth, the meditation of our heart now, we pray. Our triune God, the one who is the very great reward of his people. Amen. Today I want to begin right up front by addressing the elephant in the text. Well, what's the elephant in the text? Well, let's look at the elephant in the text, and that's this subject of slavery. One of the first criticisms you will hear today concerning the Bible is its lack of condemnation regarding slavery, right? If you're under 30 years of age, it's burned into you when you go to university or in the public square, the marketplace. Oh, look at the Bible, how it condones slavery. It doesn't speak ill against it. Critics say the apostles acknowledge the reality, 
but they did little to eradicate it. Some of the questions that people will ask is, why didn't Paul attack the institution of slavery as being evil? He had its moment, right? He had his moment. Why didn't he speak from his pedestal like us who sit in judgment oftentimes on the Word of God in our pedestal, somehow knowing better than God the Holy Spirit? Why didn't he encourage slaves to resist their masters? Why didn't he call for a revolution? an uprising, an insurrection, right? This is the questions you'll have to answer at university, girls. This is the critique of the academy. How can one claim to be a Christian and own slaves? Paul, why are you simply reinforcing the evil of the status quo? Don't disrupt the boat. While not advocating or making an excuse for the institution of slavery, I want to give a little context this morning to Paul's instructions here in Colossians 3 to slaves and masters. One of the first things we must not do is anachronistically, that is, read back into the first century Greco-Roman slavery, our understanding of 19th century chattel slavery as it was experienced here in the United States in the 17th to the 8th to the 19th century. In the first century in Rome, it was estimated there were as many as 60 million slaves. 60 million now. That's approximately 30% of the entirety of the global population. To have a household, in a Greco-Roman sense, would be to have a household where there were moms and dads and children and slaves. There were servants, bondservants, slaves, doulos is the word. But there are distinctives of Roman slavery as compared to the slavery in the United States in the Again, the 17th to the 19th century. Let me just give you a few of these distinctives. You might want to write these down because if you're going to be an apologist, that is an evangelist to your culture, ready to give an answer for the hope that's within you, you better be ready to answer the question. What about slavery, Christian? First, in Greco-Roman slavery, race played no role. This is in direct contrast to chattel slavery practiced here in the 17th and 19th century. Slaves were virtually of every race of people from every country. Greco-Roman slavery was primarily a result of military conquest. You see, that what would, go, what would happen is a country would go out and capture slaves and bring them back in. And those captives would now be the slaves of the elite, of the, the military intelligentsia of the area, of the, of, the, of the state. You see, a society without slavery was unthinkable in the first century. It was Christianity. Now listen, it was Christianity that began the subversion to slavery, of owning another human being made in God's image. It was Christianity that spoke into that context and said, this is wrong. Secondly, many slaves in the first century could reasonably expect to be emancipated during their lifetime. 
a great, a great many were expected to be released by age 30. They were actually paid. The Roman masters would pay their, their slaves. And these funds would be commonly used to purchase their freedom. Thirdly, another distinctive of Greco-Roman slavery was that many slaves worked in a variety of specialized positions. Now, some, it's true, were forced to work in hard labor, farming and manufacturing and so forth, and domestic help. But many slaves, now get this, many slaves served as doctors, as teachers, as writers, accountants, as sea captains. Many of the, the white-collar jobs, if you will, to read it anachronistically, right, back into our first-century setting. All of these are in distinction to the contrast to 19th-century American slavery that was based solely on race. I will still say, or I will say that the first century still involved the coercive ownership of another person, right? Roman slaves possessed few legal rights. They were subject to whatever punishments their masters deemed appropriate. Beloved, no one would want to live in this exploited or subservient state. And it's into this context that Paul cast the vision for how slaves and masters, that is, Christian slaves and Christian masters, are to relate and to live out their Christian faith. You see, in Paul's day, the slave would assume the religious obligations of their master. When a master became a Christian, everyone in that household would soon follow suit. Well, we know this because our God is a covenant God, right? Just like in Abraham's household. Abraham, I'm going to be your God and the God of your children, the God of all of those under your leadership. Your headship, if you will. But notice what Paul does here. He does what's unheard of. He addresses the slaves. Don't miss that. Just by addressing them, and you see what Paul was doing? He's communicating that these folks have value. They have dignity. They're acknowledged as persons with worth, as image bearers. He exhorts them in verse 23, Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. That is, your masters according literally to the flesh. Not by way of eye service, right? Eye servitude, only when they're watching you. Don't just honor and obey them then. As people pleasers trying to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart, with singleness of purpose, fearing the Lord Jesus. You see, Paul earlier had said in Colossians 3.11, in the kingdom of God there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, but Christ is all and in all. In saving union in Jesus Christ, all, all, all are God's chosen, holy, and beloved people. You see, in union with Jesus Christ, we no longer judge men according to the flesh by their race, by their pedigree, by their accomplishments in the world's calculus. We now see them in saving union in Jesus Christ. And Paul now gives these Christian slaves redeemed in Christ instructions on how to live out their faith. 
But not only do the slaves have a responsibility, notice the earthly masters. They have a responsibility to their slaves. The masters must treat their slaves with what? With justice and fairness, knowing that they also are slaves because they too have a master in heaven. You see? See what Paul's doing? Subversively preaching Christ and Him crucified, he's working subversively to undermine this institution called slavery. But before we think about the application for us, you might be thinking to yourself, Pastor, this would have been a, an opportune time, would it not have been for the Apostle Paul to speak about the great evil of slavery, right? But that's not what Paul does. Unlike many today, the Apostle Paul did not believe. Now listen to this. The Apostle Paul, unlike many today, did not believe that the societal and personal conditions of life this side of eternity were ultimate. He did not put all of his eggs in this basket of this present evil age. Church, he understood that the people of God are pilgrims. We are exiles looking to a city whose maker and builder is God. Paul was appointed and commissioned not to bring about social reform. And no doubt, social reform oftentimes is a byproduct of a faithful proclamation of a faithful church in the regeneration of Christians one by one. But rather, Paul was appointed to be an ambassador, a herald of the Lord Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God, that it had arrived, that new creation had broken in. It had dawned, if you will, in Christ's resurrection. In faithfully preaching the gospel and its attending fruit, Paul laid the foundation. Now listen, Paul laid the foundation. He laid the milieu, the environment that would eventually lead to the abolishment of slavery. Well, how? Now, there are volumes that are written on this, and I read a couple things this week, and I don't have time to go through all that I read, but let me give you three things on how this is the case. How Paul, through faithfully proclaiming Christ and Him crucified in the dawning of new creation, that there's neither slave nor free in Jesus Christ. We're all one, brand new in Him, God's new humanity, judged not according to the flesh, but in Jesus Christ we are His. Let me give you the three that I thought would be appropriate this morning. First, Christianity brought the recognition that both master and slave served a common Lord and judge, that they were both equal before God. They both serve the same Lord whom we're told in verse 25, there is no partiality. God doesn't look on the outward. Where does God look? He looks on the heart. Chronicles tells us the eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the earth. You know who he's looking for? He's looking for that child of God whose heart trembles at his word who is broken before that word, who loves him for him, 
not for what he can give. Secondly, Paul demanded that Christian masters show justice and fairness to their slaves. In Christ, they should be treated as equals. In so doing, he undermined the institution of slavery. Justice for slaves was a revolutionary concept. It was the gospel of Jesus Christ that granted slaves rights. It was the gospel of Jesus Christ that granted women rights. Children rights. Beloved, where do rights come from? They just don't disappear out of the ether. They come from God, the giver of rights. The God who made man in his own image, so he made a male and female. It's from him we have our rights. Not from kings, not from men, but from the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It's from him we have our rights. And our rights are derived. Thirdly, and most importantly, we see here and in the book of Philemon, it is the doctrine of union with Christ and the believer's adoption and communion with one another as brothers that undermine the practice of slavery. What do I mean? Let me explain a little further. Paul writes to Philemon to receive Onesimus. Now, Onesimus traveled with Tychicus with this letter in hand back to Philemon. That's where this letter's being read, probably in the living room. They're sitting there listening to this letter from Paul who's in prison being read with Onesimus there, a slave himself who had been converted under the Paul's ministry who exhorts him and encourages him to return to his master, Philemon. And this is what Paul says to Philemon. I want you to listen to this because this is telling. Philemon, receive Onesimus. Listen to what he says now. Listen. No longer as a slave, but as a beloved brother. In Christ, the master is now to see their slaves as family. You see how subversive that is? If I'm a master of slaves and this human being is no longer just an object, a wet machine, but has inherent value and dignity by virtue of their being created in the image of God, and not only that, not only created in the image of God, but purchased with the blood of the Lamb. You see? See what that's going to begin to do? Subvert this institution of slavery. Undermine its very foundation. You see, in the kingdom of God, we no longer recognize one another according to the flesh. We're co-heirs in Him. Everyone in this room in union with Jesus Christ, no matter who they are in the world's calculus, no matter how tall they are, how attractive they are, what color pigmentation they have. In union with Jesus Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, Galatians 3.28, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. 
You see, beloved, Christianity undermines slavery from within. And I think this is very instructive for us today. You see, Paul, first and foremost, understands himself not as a social crusader. He's not looking to change the culture, to shape it and to mold it. Wanting to fix all the societal ills that plague us in this life, this side of heaven. Because this side of heaven is not what is ultimate. What is ultimate? Heaven. Jesus Christ. Now we're to do good for the city while we're here. We're to be salt and we're to be light and we're to be leaven. And image bearers that men might see our good works and praise our Father in heaven. And if he brings fruit of societal change, so be it. Praise unto the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's a great byproduct of a faithful proclamation of the gospel. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is the power of God into salvation. The gospel, Jesus Christ, Him crucified, buried, and raised, that's what changes the world, one heart at a time. As it translates sinners out of Adam into Jesus Christ. You see, this is what I've been called to proclaim, what Levi's called to preach. This and this alone is humanity's only hope. You see, Paul understood that when the gospel took root, the corresponding fruit would abound for the good of all in society, ending slavery and granting individual rights and liberties. Where do you think Jefferson got the idea? on this July 3rd, 2022. It just didn't come out of a vacuum, out of the nebula. No. Even Jefferson was a man who swam in the waters of a Judeo-Christian worldview. These things just didn't happen. Oh, beloved, but they're byproducts of the gospel. We preach Christ and Him crucified and coming again. You see, Paul's mission was not to be a social worker, but to preach Christ. Now, there's more to say, right? There's more time we could spend in Sunday school. It would be a delightful time fielding questions and asking about, what about this? Well, what about that? And there might be a time and place to do that. But what can we take away today as we, we think about this paradigm of Christian slaves and masters and how to live out the Christian life? Is there any application for us today regarding our own vocations and our own callings, how we are to approach our work, right? Now, none of us here are slaves. Now, we might feel that way at our work. <laughs> and some of the masters might feel like they are masters, but that's not the case. There are four principles I think we can glean from this text, and I want to give them to you this morning. First, Christian I want you to get up tomorrow morning and I want you to go to your employer and I want you to work as if you're working for Jesus Christ. I want you to work 
as though you're working for Jesus Christ. You're doing everything for him. You see, the Christian has been set free from guilt. The Christian has been set free from the power of sin to do all their work as if they're serving the Lord. Look at 23. Whatever you do, work heartily, literally from the soul, from the suke. When you go to work tomorrow and you work for that employer, work with all your guts. That's what it's saying. So if you're Rembrandt, you paint to the glory of God. If you're Bach, you write music to the glory of God. If you're a scientist at MIT, you research to the glory of God. If you're a janitor at the Jefferson downtown, you you sweep the floors at 3 a.m., you sweep to the glory of God. As unto the Lord. Kids, listen to me. Do it to your best. Because you're loved. You're accepted. You're a son. You're a daughter of the king. Now go out and get after it. All for the glory of God. Because he's worthy of your very best. Because he's watching. He sees all that you're doing. He's given you every talent that you have. That great brain that you have, God gave it to you. That great musical ability, that great mathematic skill he gave you, use it to the glory of the king. Serve him. Paint to the glory of the king. Preach to the glory of the king. Teach Sunday school to the glory of the king. Practice medicine to the glory of the king. Practice law to the glory of the king. Whatever it is, Do it all for the glory of the king. Right? Rather than weaken our work ethic, being a Christian strengthens our motive to work. Right? The Christian should be the very best employer on the employer's list. Who's my best employee? Oh, it's the gentleman who's loyal, who's faithful, who shows up on time, who gives me everything he has or she has. I can trust them. We do this because we're working as if working for the Lord. We're giving our best. Not as men pleasers, right? Trying to impress the boss when he's watching, right? Brown nosing, so to speak. Oh, here comes the boss. Let's let's get tight. (laughs) You know, I worked at Costco for a long time. And we'd have these guys come in from Seattle, these big wigs, you know, big-time billionaires, not millionaires, but billionaires, and, you know, they make all the money. And you just would think it it was unbelievable the way people would just get so uptight. I mean, you can't breathe. There's hypoventilating. Here's the pause. You know, trying to put on a a good show, which is, it has a proper place. But if that's the only time you do it, something's wrong there, Christian. You see, we do our best because the one who bought us with his blood deserves our best because he's watching. You see, the temptation is to take a shortcut, to to cut corners, to do the bare minimum. The Holy Spirit is telling you this day in Jesus Christ as one loved by God, adopted by God, justified by God, being sanctified by God on the way to glory. He says, this should not be. Give your best. Be your best. 
that men might see your good works and praise your Father in heaven. See, it doesn't matter, again, whether you're sweeping the kitchen or teaching quantum mechanics. The Christian works to glorify God. Dr. Howard Hendricks tells the story of an American airline stewardess who was being berated by a persnickety and obnoxious man. You see, in his eyes, she couldn't do anything right. And Dr. Hendricks is sitting there, and he's watching. Have you ever watched the way stewardess, sometimes they're addressed? They're just, it's violent, literally. He's sitting there, and he's watching all of this happen in amazement. He, he calls her over to compliment her on her attitude. He wants to let her supervisor know how, how great she's doing, or the grace and the attitude in which she's working with. And the stewardess said, thank you, sir, but I don't work for American Airlines. I work for the Lord Jesus Christ. American Airlines just pays the freight. She understood, didn't she? She understood. She got it. Saints, work as if you're working for the Lord. Secondly, work with sincerity of heart. Meaning, work with a single purpose. You know, so often we like to live our tomorrows before our days are ever done, right? I do. I live in my head a lot. You guys pay me to live in my head a lot. That's a good thing, bad thing for me. One of the bad things is you're always somewhere else. You're not totally present. Paul is saying with sincerity of heart, fully present, singleness of focus, work. Verse 22, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart. Paul says, verse 23, work heartily from the soul for your employer. Again, not half-hearted, but with everything you had. Now, it, it, true, it helps to love what you do. I love what I do. I have challenges in what I do, you know, and, uh, you know, there were a couple weeks there I was thinking, I could do it next week. <laughs> but, you know, it, it's really not a job to me. I am constrained to do it. I, I have to do it. If you don't want me to do it here, I'm going to do it somewhere. That's just what it is. That's how I'm going to roll. Right? It's, it's in my bones, and i got to preach. <laughs> i got to preach about Jesus and how he changes people. He takes sinful hearts, and he gives them sincerity of heart. So they go to work on Monday, and they enjoy what they do because they serve him. They do it with everything they got. They're not minimalist. They're not looking to cut corners and to take shortcuts. They're, they're willing to do their best whether anyone else is watching or not, because you know what they know? They know Jesus is watching. When I'm in my study and no one else is around, there's always one watching. My captain, my Savior, your Savior, your Master, the one who loved you and gave himself for you, the one who became a slave for you, born under the law, right? Who washes feet, who goes to the cross to die for his enemies, who wins through losing. This is our God, who is like him. There's none like him. This is your king. Beloved, 
no matter what area of service in your life, your job, your vocation, purpose to serve your employer with the best of your ability, whether you're a teacher, you're a mom at home, lawyer, doctor, business, small, small business owner. Maybe you're an eighth grader. Do I have any eighth graders here? Let's just start through K through 12. I got any of them here? Serve him. Serve him with sincerity of heart. Give your very best kids in school. Strive for excellence. Now, you might not be an A student. You might, but you've given C gifts. Well, you know what? You better get after C hard to the glory of Jesus. God wants you to pursue excellence. Do all your work with sincerity of heart. Thirdly, faithful work will be rewarded. Now, remember the original context here. He's speaking to slaves. Do slaves have an inheritance? Let's all do this. No. Slaves don't have an inheritance. Working hardly for the Lord and not for men, knowing, verse 24, that from the Lord, who's the Lord? This is the one that keeps being repeated about, because it's all about Him, (laughs) right? We can't divorce the imperative from the indicative, from the command from the the very soil in which the, the command will grow, right? Knowing from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward. You see, the last thing a slave would expect was an inheritance. If they were given food and shelter, that was great, but Paul here says, you will be rewarded with an inheritance, That is eternal life. Why? Ultimately because you are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Your faithful service to your earthly master does not go unseen by your heavenly master. He's not going to fail to give you an eternal inheritance even if you don't receive one in this life. Even if you have to continue serving in that job that you hate. Continue serving as unto the Lord with sincerity of heart. Because you're serving him who loved you and gave himself for you, who has a reward for you, an eternal inheritance. He's a rewarder of his children. He loves his children. He longs to lavish on his children all the benefits of the kingdom because he loves you. You see, no matter how difficult your situation, whether slavery in the first century or unrighteous employer in the 21st, you have an inheritance. Colossians 1.12. God has qualified you to share in the, what? In the inheritance in the saints of the light. Who's qualified you? Jesus. That's who's qualified you. He qualifies you. He qualifies you and then he rewards you what he secured, which is an inheritance, which is eternal life. Eternal life is yours in Jesus Christ. And then Paul in verse 25 Gives us the other side of the coin, coin rather, right? Rewards for faithful work, yes, but wrongdoers will be repaid for their wrongdoing. So, that is, employees that defraud their employers and employers, rather, employees that uh, exploit their employees need to remember that God is watching. God is watching. When no one else is watching, God is watching. That should encourage us and sober us simultaneously. 
Fourth, employers must treat their employees justly and fairly. He saves the employers for last. Verse 1 of chapter 4, notice what he says. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you have a master in heaven. God expects Christian business owners to treat their employees justly and fairly. Equal and equitable treatment and provision. Why? Because every Christian at the end of the day is also a slave, no matter what our position is in this life. Queen Elizabeth, right? We just made a lot of her the past few weeks, right? Over her 70 years wearing the throne, wearing the crown. You know, she talks very boldly. I've I've seen it written of her about her faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. She calls herself a servant that is a slave of the king. That is the king, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, everyone has a master. And even employers have masters in heaven. Beloved, all lawful work has dignity in the sight of God. He cares about the work we do and the way in which we do it. Being a Christian does not lessen our responsibility. Rather, what does it do? It intensifies it. I close with this. Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, tells the story of a housemaid in his church. This housemaid served the wealthy families in London. She cleaned the bathrooms, you know, swept the kitchen, wiped down all the counters, the toilets, the whole nine yards, right? Well, she comes to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. She comes to Pastor Spurgeon, and she begins to tell him about coming to faith. And Spurgeon, a wise and godly man, begins to inquire, tell me more about yourself. Tell me, you know, a little bit about how you came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he asked her, ma'am, what spiritual fruit do you have now that you've been converted, that you know you have since you've become a Christian? How has your life changed? What are the fruits in keeping with repentance? Well, the woman, you know, she's a, she's a maid. She's very insignificant in the eyes of the world. She responded, well, I now sweep under the mats. What? I I now sweep under the mats? Before becoming a Christian, she cut corners. She was only half-hearted in her work. But you see, Jesus changed it all. Now, that might not seem like very significant to us, right? Besides, who looks under the mat? Right? Why would you sleep under the mat? No one's going to look there. Oh, but there is one. There's one who's always watching. It's one who's always looking what's under the mat, and that's Jesus Christ, because see, he goes to the mat, right? He goes under the mat. He sweeps under the mat. She knew Jesus, and she knew that he was worth her very best. Her sweeping under the mats gets to exactly what Paul is saying here. If you didn't get anything else, tomorrow when you go to work, 
I want you to endeavor to work as unto the Lord with sincerity of heart, knowing you have a reward, and I want you to begin to sweep under the mat. Jesus has a way of getting under the mat. Isn't it amazing that the king goes to the mat? He cares about that. That he, he sees the woman who gives all that she has. He doesn't see kings and all their treasuries and their, their vaults and all the, the SUVs of world bringing all their goods and goodies. But she, he, sees, he sees the widow. He gives, he gives all that she has. It's sublime, church, I'm telling you. It, it's not the way I would do it. It's not the way you would do it. So tomorrow morning, you get up, before your feet hit the ground, you thank Him for the day, you pray His will be done, His kingdom come, and then when you get to work, intentionally begin to sweep under the mat, because Jesus is always watching, your faithful King, your loving Father the guarantor, the Holy Spirit who's sealed you for the day of redemption, for this inheritance that Paul promises, rather the Holy Spirit promises. May God give us grace, right? Can you imagine if the church of the Jesus Christ began to start to live like this? Spent more time consumed with sweeping under mats. Okay, I'm going to get ready to preach here. That we're obsessed with this Jesus. Because he's obsessed with us. May God give us grace. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you, Father, that you love us. You spared not your son, but you gave him up freely for us all. You withheld nothing. You gave us heaven's best. There's nothing more, better, more lovely, more true than Jesus Christ, and you spared him not for us. Oh, Father, may we have some understanding of the great love of the Father for us in Jesus Christ, that we too might be those who work as unto you with sincerity of heart, knowing that you are a rewarder of those who pursue righteousness, and that you will encourage us to sweep under the mat for the glory of Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.